All right, good morning, everybody. So speaking of the children's ministry, if you've got kids in here with you, they are dismissed. So preschool through, I think Pastor Chris said through fifth grade, and then um, youth group, so middle school, high school, you guys are dismissed as well. Um, everybody else, it is so good to see you this morning. I know that it maybe wasn't easy uh, getting here this morning, but what a blessing. God gave us a little break in the rain so that we could come out to church today. But um, no matter how hard you work to get here, uh, I met a dear brother and sister who um, traveled from Norway to come here. So they made it. So I have to confess they didn't come from Norway just to come to our church, but they're passing through and they decided to join us for church. So um, we're going to wave to them and we're going to bless them and meet them afterward. And now they're never going to come back. Well, they probably wouldn't come back anyway because they're from Norway and they don't even live here. But we're glad to have you guys. Um, so turn to the book of Mark. We're going to be uh, back in the book uh, of Mark this morning. Um, we've got a lot of exciting stuff that's going on here kind of as we come out of the, the Christmas celebration and we start out a new year. So do pay attention to some of those things that Pastor Chris mentioned that are in the bulletin. Uh, trying to get uh, those midweek meetings kind of restarted again, get our men's ministry kind of back on track. Um, so we would love you to participate in some of those uh, things. So um, Mark chapter 3 today, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some that you can borrow. You can raise your hand and one of the guys will bring one to you. Uh, you could certainly use a Bible on your phone, whatever's most convenient um, for you. But let's pray and just really ask the Lord to bless uh, our time now in the word as he's already blessed uh, our time uh, in worship. So, Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here together, Lord. We thank you for this place that you've provided, Lord, this shelter, not simply from the weather, Lord, but this shelter from all of the pressures that, um, that we each face in our daily life, Lord. And as we get here, Lord, and we begin a new week afresh, Lord, we want to begin it with our eyes fixed firmly uh, upon you. And so we pray, Lord, as we go to the scriptures today, Lord, that you would be our teacher, Lord, that that teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today, Lord, and that you would give us ears to hear what he would say to your church, Lord, both uh, individually as well as collectively. And we thank you, Lord. Pray your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, Mark chapter 3, we're going to pick up kind of right where we left off a few weeks back before we broke for uh, the Christmas celebration. We're going to finish the rest of chapter 3 today. So we'll be looking at verses 20 through 35. And I will tell you right away that this is kind of a problematic passage, uh, at least for some. Because Jesus makes uh, a very sort of a, of a startling and a really sobering statement um, in our text today. And it's one that has been misunderstood by many, but is really so important to be understood for all of us. And my hope, and I, I believe that as we work our way through it, and we really see it in the context that he makes it, we look at it in the context of the rest of the scriptures, I think that we're going to see that there's actually some encouragement for us there uh, in what he said. So just to bring us kind of up to speed, remember as we join Jesus that he's up there in the Galilee, right? And this is right at the height of his popularity, probably somewhere around year two of his very short three and a half years of public ministry. Remember we've said that that first year was often referred to as the year of obscurity and it's really only John that describes that for us at all. The second year is called the year of his popularity and Mark actually picks up his account at the beginning kind of of that second year. The third year, right, that third kind of year-long give or take period is known as the year of opposition. And this is the point where he's headed toward the cross, right? Both 
both literally headed down toward Jerusalem and also, of course, spiritually as the cross looms ahead of him. But for now, here Jesus is in the northern part of Israel, in the area of the Galilee, in fact, right around the Sea of Galilee. And what we've watched really is just scene after scene of these crowds, right? Multitudes of them is the word that Mark uses. And we see that they're constantly pressing in on him and they want to be touched by him. They just want to hear from him about the coming of this new kingdom. At this point already, it just in Mark's account, Jesus has taken this gospel message we've seen basically to the north and the south and the east and the west, almost covering all of Israel, right? It's the good news of God's love. It's that call to repentance, that call into relationship with God, and that call to enter into this kingdom of God. And where we've read about him time and time again, right, going into villages, cities, villages, these little towns, and we read that Mark says that he healed every single person there. Every single person there that had need or that had disease, and not only in that particular village or in that particular city, but remember Mark tells us that people were bringing other people from miles and miles around into those cities, all to come for the healing touch of Jesus, to come for the, the casting out of demons by those, so many who were demon-possessed, right? So many healed, so many delivered, we can't even count them all. I think if we had to guess, by this point in Jesus' ministry, we could easily be talking about thousands, thousands of people who've not only been impacted by his powerful message, but have been impacted personally by the power of his touch, right? Remember, he was this radical new rabbi with this new message of hope and of healing that came after 400 years of this silence from heaven. Right, so into this world that is so hungry for the power of God and so hungry for the message of God, Jesus comes on the scene and we see Mark describe the way he provides that in such a very dramatic way. And so we have these multitudes who are pressing in to touch him, to be impacted. And as we pick up this morning, right midway through this chapter, we're going to see the very same scene played out yet again. Look with me at verse 20 of Mark chapter 3. It says that then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. So the idea here again is that these crowds so pressed in on Jesus and his newly called disciples, so much so this time that they didn't even have the time, they didn't even have the space to eat, right? It says in verse 21, but when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he is out of his mind. So this reference here is probably talking about Jesus' friends, right? Most likely from his hometown, those who had known him before his public popularity. Remember, Jesus grew up right in this area of the Galilee, just over in Nazareth, probably 20 or so miles southwest of where we are here in Capernaum. And of course, the news of Jesus was so well known at this point throughout all the region that as these people here in his hometown, they were hearing the reports, they were just sure that Jesus had taken leave of his senses, right? He was out of his mind. And whatever was happening up there, he must have been completely confused, possibly deranged. He's got these huge crowds following him. They're hearing these amazing reports about him. And they were so convinced that he desperately needed help, right? They're saying to each other, look, he's so busy preaching and teaching, he's not even eating. So this was sort of time for a family intervention, right? We get all the friends together. He was just not living a normal life. And so they make this trip to Capernaum. It says there to lay hold of him, which literally means to take charge of him, right? Because they clearly were misunderstanding the ministry of Jesus. Now, 
Obviously, they were wrong. And yet, before we get too critical of these people, let's just look at things from their perspective because Jesus had done some things that didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Right? He had just left this prosperous business as a carpenter to become an itinerant preacher. Right? All of a sudden in his life, he's demonstrating this incredible spiritual power and he's got this miraculous ministry that he had never really shown at any point earlier in his life. He's got, as we said, these multitudes of these crowds following after him. They are hanging on his every word. They're tracking his every move, right? If there were paparazzi at the time, they would have been all over Jesus, right? The Jewish religious and the political leaders, remember, they have already openly threatened him. They were actively plotting to murder him. And yet Jesus didn't back down at all. And then most recently, if you remember from our text just last time, he had just chosen and called such an unlikely group of disciples. Right? He's got this ragtag group of these uneducated fishermen and these traitorous tax collectors, these religious and these political zealots, so surely his judgment at this point could absolutely be questioned. And now, just to top all of that off, he wasn't even eating, but probably for days on end. So he had clearly become some kind of a mentally imbalanced, overzealous religious fanatic, and they just didn't know what to make of it. Okay, funny story. When Michelle and I first got saved at Calvary Chapel San Jose uh, many years ago, God did such an amazing work in our lives in such an amazingly short amount of time because we both went from neither one of us having stepped foot through the door of a church in years and years, now to the point where we were both there together at the church seven days a week. And I, and I don't just mean that figuratively. Right, Monday nights, we were at college and careers. That tells you we were a little bit younger then, right? Monday nights for college and career. Tuesday nights for men's and women's studies. Wednesday nights for midweek service. Thursday nights for Bible college classes. Friday nights was married couples. Saturdays was discipleship or conferences or prayer meetings. And of course, then twice on Sundays, of course, for morning and nighttime services. Right? God had gotten a hold of our hearts and he was changing them and he was doing it on the fast track. So much so that my parents, who are believers, even they didn't understand what was happening with us and they were sure that we had joined a cult. Right? So they went to their own pastor at their church and they said, what is this Calvary Chapel group? Right? Is it okay? Is this a cult that our kids have gotten involved with? And thank, thank goodness, their pastor gave us the thumbs up on Calvary Chapel at that point. And here we are today, right? A year later, no, more than a year later. So, The point is, so often when the Lord gets a hold of a human heart and the Spirit begins to really do a work in that heart and to transform that life, it will very often be those who are closest to us who are the most puzzled by what's happening in us because they knew us beforehand, amen? So take heart, right? Family and friends very often simply won't understand what the Lord is doing in you because they don't have the, the context to understand it. So be encouraged, you're in very, very good company, right? Because life experience tells us, church history tells us that God's servants are very often misunderstood. They're very often misjudged by friends and even family. D.L. Moody, we've talked about him before, the great American evangelist. You know what they called him in Chicago? They called him Crazy Moody because he was so crazy for the gospel, Right? We know the Apostle Paul was called mad, right? And of course, here, Jesus' family thought that he had lost his mind, and they clearly didn't understand what was going on with him. Now, as we move on in our text, unlike his family, there was one group there who should have known 
exactly what it was that was happening. And likely they did, but they chose to deny it, and they saw this as an opportunity now to discredit Jesus. Look what it says in verse 22. It says, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So these are our old friends, right? These Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and most likely some Pharisees with them. And as we've seen, they had heard about Jesus from down in Jerusalem and they had made this journey up all the way to Capernaum. And we're talking about a tremendous distance that they've traveled, right? Days of hard walking up to the hick town up there in the Galilee just to get eyes on for themselves what it was that was happening up there. As we said, Jesus' popularity was off the charts. Everybody in Israel at this point had heard of him, also in the nations that were surrounding Israel. And so it didn't take these religious leaders long to realize that this man is a threat to our religious establishment. He's a threat to this religious system, this lucrative money-making op uh, operation, this, this power organization that they had turned Judaism into under their watch. Now, if you think that the world knows how to fight for power and money, you haven't seen anything until you see religious people whose power and money is somehow threatened and you watch the fight that they put up and that's exactly what they're doing here. They knew he was a threat and that he needed to be dealt with. And so they see this opportunity, they jump in and they come to exactly where it was where Jesus was doing this touching and this healing and they declare to these crowds these people who were following after Jesus, that all of these different miracles that you're seeing, right, all these demons that you're seeing him cast out, that he's doing it by the power of the devil. That's how he's doing it. Now that name Beelzebub means Lord of dung flies, right, or Lord of filth. And it was originally a reference to a Canaanite deity, who they considered to be Lord of all of the evil spirits. So a clear reference in the Hebrew mind to Satan himself, right? The ruler of the demons. And so given that, if we look a little closer at what they actually said, it's, it's actually even worse because they actually were accusing Jesus of being possessed by Satan himself. Notice they say that he has Beelzebub. Right, implying then that Beelzebub has him, right, is using him as an agent. Here's what one language expert wrote about that passage. He says that the expression points to something more than an alliance, but to possession, and that on a grand scale. And they didn't even just say that Jesus was possessed by any demon. They said he was possessed by Satan himself. And ironically, the very same author adds this observation that in a sense, this was kind of an involuntary compliment to the exceptional power and greatness of Jesus. Right? Of course, what it actually was, was it was a serious and a vile and a blasphemous charge. So in this chapter, we see that already his own people they had misunderstood him, right? They had misunderstood the ministry of Jesus. But now we see that these scribes who came down from Jerusalem, they had viciously and cynically just attacked Jesus. And they hadn't attacked his ministry. They had attacked the character of Jesus. And remember, these are the religious leaders of Israel. Just how hard and dark-hearted do you have to be to claim that Jesus was possessed by Satan. They should have recognized him as the Messiah. They may have recognized him as the Messiah. But here they are making these claims that he's possessed by Satan. You think about the most pagan person that you know. 
Think about the most unbelieving unbeliever that you know, and they say stuff like, you know, I just don't want anything to do with the Bible. I don't want anything to do with the God of the Bible. I don't want anything to do with Jesus, simply because I know that that's going to just cramp my style. I, I love my sin. I love my self-will. I love the things that I love to do. And I know that if I give my life to God, everything's going to change, and I just simply haven't had my fill of sin yet. There are those people, right? I've talked to them, but at least that's an honest position. But here you have someone in the darkness. They come on the scene, and now not only do they reject Jesus personally, but now they take his sinless reputation and they just drag it through the mud. And what a dark, dark heart, especially in a person or, or really a group of people that claimed to represent God because that's what they were, right? They claimed to be the spokespersons for God amongst all of the Jewish people. Now, if I were Jesus, okay, you know we're in trouble when I start that way, right? But if I were Jesus, it would have been like oh, the Old Testament is back on, right? I'd have been calling, like, like Elijah, I'd have been calling down fire on these guys, or like Elisha, I'd have been bringing the wild bears out to eat these dudes, right? But I'm not Jesus, and that's not what he does. Look instead in verse 23, the way he decides to handle it. It says in verse 23 that he called them to himself, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? So first of all, he just lets them make this blasphemous claim and then he just calls them over to himself and he starts to reason with them. Right? He's going to correct the accusation and the first thing that he does is he just pokes a hole right through their bad logic. Don't you hate when the Lord does that to you? Right? He says, listen boys, the thing you just said, that doesn't even make any sense. Right? Why would Satan work against himself? And now he's going to give them a series of these little parables to help them to understand what he's really saying. Remember, parables are kind of these, we've seen them before, remember, as we were going through uh, Matthew in particular, but they're these short proverbial little sayings that are taken from real life and they are given in order to illustrate a spiritual truth. So a parable is kind of a, a, a picture that first of all gets our attention and it kind of piques our interest. But then the more that we study the picture, as we start to look at it with the eyes of faith, then the picture becomes a window. And it becomes a window that kind of opens up and we start to see the truth of God. And the way that parables work is that the, the way that we receive and the way that we respond to that truth will determine what kind of further truth God will reveal, right? So we see over and over that Jesus teaches in parables because he knew that those who wanted to see would start to see, and then they would be able to start to see more, but those who refused to see would simply remain in the dark where they wanted to stay. So he's about to provide them with these two quick pictures kind of given in parables and then he's going to draw a conclusion look what he says in verses 24 and 25 he simply says that if a kingdom is divided against itself that kingdom cannot stand and if a house is divided against itself that house cannot stand again why would satan work to defeat himself he says guys try to think of a single kingdom in all of human history that has been able to expand itself by virtue of fighting against itself. He says it just doesn't happen because it's not a viable strategy. And in essence, what he's saying, you know, he says, look, Satan is no fool. He's way too cunning to make the mistake that you're accusing me of being a part of. There's no way that Satan is going to participate in the destruction of his own kingdom. This just doesn't make sense. But then he doesn't stop there. Now there's kind of a, a therefore. In verse 26, he says, And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. Meaning specifically, an end, that would be the end of his power. 
Again, Satan is too smart to engineer his own destruction. That is not what is happening here, Jesus says. But then he goes on and kind of gives them another picture that instead illustrates what is really happening here. That in fact, Jesus was doing the very opposite of what they said he was doing. He says in verse 27 that no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Okay, understand the picture. Who's the strong man? Satan. What are his goods? People. Who has come to plunder his house and take back all of those people in bondage from Satan's grasp? Jesus. Okay, the answer is usually Jesus, right? When you get in the question in church. So he's got this another sort of a, a little bit more extensive illustration, really to punctuate his point, that when someone is able to break into another person's house, and when they're able to go in and then take out of that house whatever it is they choose to take out, it's an evidence that the person who's able to take from one man's kingdom, right? If we could take from one man's house so freely, it's an evidence that that person who comes in and takes is someone who is far stronger than the person he's taking from, even if that person was a strong man. So here Jesus is saying, look, when I step right into Satan's living room, and keep in mind, there were men and women all throughout the land of Israel that were captive to the power of Satan. But Jesus says, look, when I step in and I cast out a demon from all of these people, what I have just done is stepped into Satan's house. I've gone into his living room and I have just taken right out from under his nose the thing that once belonged solely to him and I have delivered it from his house and I have now brought it into my house. And so the, what the evidence of Jesus casting demons out of people should have shown these religious men if they had wanted to see it was not that he was doing it in the power of the devil, but to the contrary, it should have shown them that someone who was far greater than the devil had finally stepped onto the scene in human history. And that so strong was his power that now with virtually no effort at all, he could plunder people away from Satan and deliver them from Satan's power. That he could bind Satan and take from him what is most precious to him. You know, Satan doesn't care at all about money. He doesn't care about gold. He doesn't really care even about power. He doesn't care about any of those things ultimately. Now, he uses those things constantly, of course. But all Satan really cares about, right? he knows that he's doomed. He knows that he is headed for an eternal lake of fire because of his rebellion and because of the, the rebellion also with those demons who rebelled along with him. He understands that. And the only thing he wants to do now, the only thing he can do between then and now is to take every man, woman, and child that he can into that judgment, right into that eternal judgment and torment and misery and to take them right along with him. He is that ruthless and he is that hard-hearted. And so when Jesus comes in and he delivers a human being from the power of the devil, he is taking from the devil the thing that is most prized by the devil. Again, it's not wealth and it's none of those things, but Jesus is delivering people. Right? And this is this battle that is being waged, the devil against God, and it's over the souls and the destinies of human beings. And what these religious leaders ought to have done, if they were willing to accept at all what they were seeing and if they understood anything about what Jesus was doing, is they should have gotten down on their knees and they should have declared, We've been waiting 400 years for something like this to finally happen. 
in Jewish history, in world history, we've been waiting that someone greater than the devil would come on the scene with this kind of power. And they would have acknowledged that Jesus wasn't working in cooperation with the devil, but that he was infinitely greater and so much far superior to the devil. They would have acknowledged that the strong men had been bound and that his house was being plundered. And I have to tell you, I like this. I like this very, very much because I don't know what kind of spiritual warfare you go through in your life as a Christian. I don't know what kind of, you know, what you've experienced maybe of the demonic realm before you finally became a Christian. But I, for one, am so thankful for this passage and for other passages just like this that testify to us about the fact that Jesus, right, that the name of Jesus is greater than any power that the devil has. He's greater than any hold that the devil can have upon the lives of people. That just like we sang this morning, right, that kings and kings and kingdoms will bow down and that the king has come to set the captives free. And just that we know that whatever trial or whatever spiritual attack can come, whether they come in the dark of the night or whether they come in the midst of the day, but just to know that we can simply declare the name of Jesus and then to recognize that all of a sudden that a completely new power and a whole new dynamic has now entered the situation by virtue of simply bringing Jesus into this. I am so glad that the scriptures clearly show us the authority that Jesus has and his power over the demonic realm. And I'm so thankful about the way that that operates and extends right directly into our lives this morning. But what an absolute blasphemy to accuse him of being an extension of the, that demonic realm. How dishonest can a human heart be to make this kind of assessment of the life of Jesus. And so it is in this context, and it's to these men, that Jesus next makes this very sobering statement. Look at verses 28 through 30. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, or in the old King James, right? Verily, verily, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. So Jesus just gave these men something that should have simply stopped them in their tracks. This is a serious and a very somber warning because they were well on their way, right? They were perilously close to committing what Jesus says is the single sin for which there is no forgiveness, and that was to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Now, it's from this passage that you may have heard someone refer to something called, you know, the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin. And before we talk about what it is, can I just say that just the thought of this is really something to consider. I mean, here it is right in the scriptures, right out of the mouth of Jesus, no less. Right? And we can sometimes, you know, we can be familiar with the passage, we may even understand what it means, but to realize that there is a sin a person could commit in human history for which there is absolutely no forgiveness for that sin. So I think it's something that's important for us to understand what the unpardonable sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is and what it is not. So what exactly does that mean? What exactly had these guys done? Well, most simply, we can understand from the scriptures what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is by first understanding what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. Right? Jesus said this in John chapter 16. He said that of the Spirit, he said that when he has come, that he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness 
and of judgment. And earlier he had said that when the Spirit came, that he will testify of me. So the primary work of the Holy Spirit in this world at this time and in the hearts of men and women is to point them to Jesus Christ and then to lead them to faith in him. So if and when we persistently and consistently reject the work that the Spirit is trying to do in our hearts and when we have this continued settled rejection of what it is he's trying to tell us about Jesus, we dismiss his witness and we are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Notice Mark specifically tells us that the reason that Jesus warned them that they were close to this sin, look there in verse 30, it's because they said he has an unclean spirit. Now, in the ancient Greek world and in the ancient Greek mind, the idea of blasphemy specifically has the sense of speaking evil or showing a deep, deep disregard or a disrespect for a deity. Okay? Now, by attributing the work of the Holy Spirit as he was operating through Jesus, by attributing that to satanic power, they were very, very close to calling the Holy Spirit Satan. And what they said was revealing where their hearts were. It was revealing that their hearts were already being set in this immovable kind of opposition to the convicting work that the Holy Spirit was trying to do in them. Here these guys are. They are right there. They're not just reading about what Jesus was doing. They are witnessing the work of the Spirit through Jesus as he is touching and he's healing people and as demonic forces are being cast out and as the kingdom of darkness is being conquered and being subdued right before their eyes. Jesus is restoring and Jesus is blessing and it's the power of the Holy Spirit that is doing all of these miraculous things through Jesus and they come and they say that Jesus is really doing all of this by the power of the devil. Just revealing that their hearts were so resistant, right? There was nothing that could be done to show them their minds were made up that they would even go so far as to attribute the work of the Spirit here to Satan. And Jesus himself said in Luke 6 that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so these words indicate exactly where their hearts were. And that was that they were near to that perilous point of crossing over what would be kind of the point of no return. You're all familiar with Romans chapter 1 where Paul writes and he talks about those who, who continue to resist the witness that God has provided. Right? In Romans 1.28, he says, even they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. He says that God gave them over to a debased mind. And just before that, he's talked about people who continually suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Right? And those people are eventually just allowed to go the, the way of their sin. And that's what Jesus is warning about here in terms of what these men are doing. When a person is so unwilling to accept the truth about Jesus Christ that they are willing then to ascribe the miracles that he's doing, that he was doing them by the power of the devil, now you're dealing with a person whose heart is so hard and they're so determined to reject Jesus no matter what the evidence is that they are in grave danger now of spending the rest of their life rejecting him and then dying in that condition. The author to the Hebrews, he makes a similar statement about those who persist to reject Jesus. Hebrews 10 talks about those who have trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. So again, we're talking about a, a complete and a total disregard for Christ, for his blood that was shed, for the work of the Spirit trying to bring us to repentance. It's a complete disregard of it. It's total indifference towards it. And that's what's being talked about here. Now, as a pastor, 
I want to put some minds at ease. If you're here and you're listening and you're concerned that you've committed the unpardonable sin, that maybe at some point in the past that you said something or that you did something and now you've been turned over to your sin, let me assure you that you haven't been. Now, how do I know that? Because simply the fact that you're concerned about it means that you haven't committed it. So your concern is evidence. Your concern is evidence. It means that the Spirit is still bringing conviction to you. It means that the Spirit is still active in your life. It means that the Spirit is still speaking to your heart or you wouldn't even care. See, people who've committed the blasphemy of the Spirit couldn't care less that they've done it. So whatever you think that you may have done or whatever you think you may have said or, or that time when you were angry at God and you just shook your fist at him and maybe you even cursed God, that was not the unpardonable sin. Notice again what Jesus says. He says in verse 28 that all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, whatever blasphemies they may utter. So whatever sin you can think of, no matter how horrible or evil or vile or perverted, whatever you can possibly think or whatever you've possibly done or whatever you've said, even if you've repeatedly rejected the gospel message, if you've repeatedly rejected God's plan of salvation for your life, even that at this point isn't the unpardonable sin because as you sit here this morning, all of that can change today. All of that can be completely forgiven in an instant because Jesus died for all of those sins, right? All sins will be forgiven the sons of men. But the one thing Right? The only thing that can't be forgiven is to continue on in the rejection of the only one who can forgive you. Because the forgiveness for all of those sins is all bound up in the blood of Jesus Christ. John tells us that it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from sin. Right, the scriptures are clear, the book of Hebrews, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Right? It's just like the old song says, right? There is power in the blood of Jesus. It's in the blood of Jesus. That's the power to forgive you of whatever you've done or whatever you've said, whether it was against another person or against God himself. You can be forgiven of that in an instant right now this morning if you want to be. And if you do want to be, then you have not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And can I just say, Jesus didn't utter these words in order to torment anxious souls who are honestly desiring to know him. But he absolutely did say these things. Right? And now these verses stand out and they have become, they're this blazing beacon that warns us of the danger of persisting in rejecting the testimony, despising the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Jesus' work on our behalf and about that shed blood until that point when our consciences are so seared over that they won't respond to the gospel message. And if that is you today, then I do pray that these words, that this very sobering statement of Jesus, I pray that they would pierce your heart and that they would drive you to your knees to seek out for that forgiveness. These are heavy words. And they're heavy words by design because souls are hanging in the balance. These words are here in the scriptures for a reason. But I also want to say this. Guess what? The devil loves this passage. Okay? The devil loves this kind of stuff because he's a liar. And he loves to twist the words of Jesus. And he loves these passages in the scriptures. Because believe it or not, the devil has his own favorite Bible verses. They're not the ones that are our favorites. 
But Satan has his own favorite Bible verses, and I'm sure if he has his own copy of the Bible that they are underlined in the Bible. And I would bet that when he's training his demons, these are the ones he pulls out and he says, okay, these are your key verses. Use these. And when somebody slips up and says something blasphemous or when they're mad at God or when they're frustrated with God, I want you to get right there and I want you to tell them, I want you to pull these verses out. I want you to drag these verses up. Get those ones from Hebrews chapter 10 where it says that if you sin willfully, that's it, that you've sinned willfully and there's no further sacrifice for sin. And they do it. And what happens is that so many people, so many sincere Christians, they fall for it and they believe it and they fall into this state of horrible condemnation and they live for so long in utter torment because they're so fearful that they've done it. But like I said, if you're concerned about it, that means you didn't do it because the one who has done it couldn't care less. Therefore, right, if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Amen? And even if you are here this morning, right, if you're listening in, even if you're in this horrible backslidden condition, right, maybe you're in a hopelessly backslidden condition. And you're saying, you know, you know, I should have known better. I was raised in a Christian home and I backslid or I was walking with the Lord and then I fell away. If you knew the things that I'd seen, if you knew the things that I've done, you know, the things that I've said that were part of my life while I'm in this backslidden condition, if you knew what I'd done, you would know that there is no power there for me to be saved. There's no way that I could possibly be restored. But here's the thing even about backsliding is that backsliding can even be repented of in an instant. In one single moment, even this morning, we can always return to God, we can always be restored by God. So do not let the devil lie to you. Do not let him twist the words of Jesus to condemn you. He loves you, right? Not the devil, Jesus loves you. He wants you to come to him no matter what. Even these men. Jesus doesn't say they, they had committed the sin. He knows that they were perilously close to crossing that line. They had attacked his character and he still tries to reason with them and to minister to them. So now as, as we finish up with this chapter, Mark's going to come back around he kind of is going to return to this same subject of the family of Jesus, their own kind of misunderstanding of his ministry. Look what we read in verse 31. It says that then his brothers and his mother came. Wait a minute. Well, that sort of challenges that whole Roman Catholic idea, right, that Mary was a perpetual virgin. The Bible apparently seems to indicate that she and Joseph had other children after they had Jesus, which is interesting. Verse 31, that his brothers and his mother came and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So first the friends and now the family have traveled this 20 plus miles from Nazareth to plead with Jesus just to come home and to get some rest. But again, the, the crowds were so great around him, they couldn't even get to him. But he answered, in verse 33, he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. So again, you talk about a problematic passage, right? We go from this sobering statement from Jesus in verses 28 through 30, and now we have this very surprising declaration by Jesus here in verse 35. Now, please don't misunderstand. Jesus was not being rude to his family when he didn't drop everything to go out to them. He no doubt knew that their motives were right, 
but that their mission was absolutely wrong. Because to go with them would have proven that the religious leaders were right, that somehow Jesus had gotten out a little bit too far over his skis, right? He needed to be kind of reeled back in, right? He would have played right into the hands of his opposition. And so instead of going out to them, he turns this moment into a teaching opportunity to really impart what is a very important spiritual lesson, and that is that his true family is made up of those who do the will of God, right? That the the relationships that really matter in the eternal scheme of things are the relationships that are based on rightly being related to the Father. We know that at this point, none of Jesus' half-brothers Right? Half-brothers because they had the same mother but a different father, right? Because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But none of his half-brothers, James, Joseph, Jude, or Simon, at this point, none of them believed in Jesus. They didn't believe who he said that he was or who the people were saying that he was. And Jesus is saying that he shared a spiritual intimacy that he felt closer to these believing tax collectors and sinners, all of those who were sitting there in the circle, right? He looks around at these eager faces of these people who are earnestly listening to his words, these closest disciples. He felt closer to them in a sense of spiritual intimacy than he did even to his half-brothers. And so all Jesus is doing is he's highlighting that there's a far deeper issue and that's the, the, a person's spiritual relationship to him. You may have heard the expression that blood is thicker than water, right? Or that the, the relationships and the loyalties within a family should be the strongest and the most important. But the, the truth is, spiritually, that the Holy Spirit is thicker than blood. Right? And when you follow Jesus, everything changes, including perhaps even those strongest and most intimate connections that human beings can have. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's just emphasizing or maybe even illustrating what he'd already said to Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. Remember he said that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And it's that new birth, right? It's our spiritual rebirth that brings us into this everlasting relationship with Jesus, right? When we're born again, we're born into the family of God. And now we share the nature of God. We now call God our Father in that Abba personal kind of way. We're part of this new family. And this was a mind-blowing idea, especially when you consider the importance of the family in that Jewish society, we can only begin to imagine just how radical Jesus' words must have sounded to this multitude. Now, for us, Jesus isn't suggesting that we as believers either ignore or abandon our families in order to serve God. But what he is suggesting is that we put the will of God and we put our relationship with God above everything else now in our lives. I think the scriptures are clear that it certainly is God's will that we take care for our families and that we provide for them, but we can't allow ourselves into a situation where we are allowing even our closest and our dearest loved ones to influence us away from the will of God. And so so as we close today, I know for a fact that there's many of you who are dealing even now with some very difficult kind of family dynamics, right? Maybe an unbelieving spouse or unbelieving children or even parents or extended family members who are not walking with the Lord and they're constantly questioning your your strong commitment to the Lord. They don't understand this new way of life. They might even sort of despise this spiritual crutch that you seem to need. But I want to encourage you this morning 
to just continue to love them through their unbelief. Continue to honor them and even to treasure them for who they are in your life because remember that God placed them in your life and he did it for a purpose. So if we have people who are unsaved in our family, we need to look at them and we need to see them just like Jesus sees them. He sees them still in bondage and still deceived by the lies of the enemy. We need to see them with the very same compassion that Jesus sees them. They're not the enemy, right? They're family. And they should be our primary mission field. And we just need to trust that God's going to continue to use our witness to someday bring them to faith. Because here's, think about this. Here we have the brothers of Jesus who didn't believe in him. What was it that finally brought Jesus' family to faith? Pop quiz, right? It was the resurrection. It was his resurrection from the dead. Because we go from a scene like this, where all of the brothers here are thinking that he's crazy, the next time we see them is in Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, and we see that they're right there with Mary in the upper room, in fervent prayer, at Jesus' command, awaiting the arrival of the Holy Spirit with the rest of the disciples. It says in Acts 1.14, we all know the beginning of the verse, right? That all these were there with one accord and they were devoting themselves to prayer. And then it says, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now we know, of course, that both James and Jude both became pillars of the early church. Right? And I think there's some great encouragement here for us as we consider the way that we're witnessing to maybe unsaved family members is that what will ultimately draw them to faith themselves is as they witness our own resurrection. Right? As they really begin to firsthand, they can witness that resurrection to new life from that person they once knew that we were. They watch and they see that new nature that's been given to us by the Spirit and those new desires that the Spirit has birthed within us. As they really start to see the mercy and the grace that flows out of us, even in the face of their unbelief. Because what we need to remember about unbelieving family members is that they tend to act like what? Unbelieving family members, right? So we need to offer grace and we need to offer understanding in return for their pride and their ignorance. And just pray that they see Jesus in us because it is far better to keep your relationship with an unbelieving relative right than to prove that you're right. I'm going to say that again for those of you who are napping. It's far better to keep your relationship with an unbelieving relative right than to prove that you're right. We need to keep the long view in mind. We need to play the long game. We need to trust the Holy Spirit to do his work, that he's the one that's going to probe and he's the one that's going to prod them out of their spiritual slumber. What we need to do is just keep planting good seeds. Right, seeds of grace and seeds of mercy and seeds of unselfish service. And then we can also place some strategically planted seeds of Bible insights for them, right? On a kind of an as-needed basis, if you catch my drift. Because here's what's going to happen. In due time, every one of these cynics are going to at some point come face to face with their own crushing life challenge. They're going to come up against their own health issue or job loss or deal with their own wayward child or some sort of a financial hardship. And very likely they're going to seek you for some encouragement and some answers and maybe even ask for your prayers because they've watched and because they've seen the fruit of your faithfulness as you've gone through all of these same things. 
They've seen the evidence and they've seen the outworking of your faith. They've seen your own resurrection of sorts. Now I know this has not been a light text today, right? And I want to encourage you, if you're here and if your spirit is unsettled by any of this, right? If the Holy Spirit is stirring your spirit in reaction to this, please ask someone to pray with you before you leave today. There are going to be people up here available to pray with you as we worship. There are people around you who would love to pray with you, either to receive the Lord for the first time or to come back to the Lord maybe after a long time. Whatever it is the Spirit may be prompting, let me encourage you, don't let it sit. Don't resist that witness of the Spirit as he speaks to your heart. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you even for these problematic passages like this one, Lord, and we thank you for the words of Jesus, and we do thank you, Lord, even for the encouragement that we see embedded deep within this, Lord. We thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your mercy. Lord, we thank you that there is forgiveness, Lord, as long as we are here, Lord, as long as your spirit is still ministering, Lord, there's forgiveness offered for whatever it is that we've done, Lord, or said or thought. And so, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, whose spirit is stirred inside of them around any of these things, Lord, I do pray that they would come forward for prayer, Lord, that they would raise their hands and ask for prayer, Lord, or that they would simply enter into prayer with you even now as we worship, Lord, and that you would do that deep work in them, Lord. Restore people, we pray this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So let's stand up and let's uh, worship the Lord together.